Have you ever wondered how you can make your memories work for you and provide a way to make you happier? That's what we'll talk about today. Life brings tears, smiles, and memories. The tears dry, the smiles fade, but the memories last forever. Malik Faisal. Today we're going to continue our conversation about the art of making memories, how to create and remember happy moments by Mike Viking. And again, that's spelled M-E-I-K-W-I-K-I-N-G. Last time we talked about why it's important that we record happy memories and how we can take some techniques to better put those memories into their right place. We talked about using our sensory, using location, and doing novel things so that we can make new good memories, not just remember the ones in the past. Today, we're going to talk about more techniques in order to use these memories to make us happier. One of the things I liked about this book is there's a lot of good memory books out there. We talked in the past about the Jim Quick memory book. But that was using memory as a way of helping us be more productive, remember our speeches, remember the things we're supposed to do, or remember important details. This book is only, not that you can't use techniques to do everything, but primarily it's about trying to make ourselves happier by recalling happy memories from our past, but also making new memories that will make us happier in the future. He says the next important thing to know when you're trying to do this is that we need to pay attention. We have to pay attention to the things that are going on in our lives to even have a chance of memorizing them. Talks about the Sherlock Holmes book where he asks Holmes about how many steps they just walked up. And Holmes is like, oh, I don't know, you know, this many, that many. I'm not exactly sure. And he says, and Sherlock says, quite so, you have not observed. And yet you've seen, and that is just my point. Now that I know there's 17 steps, because I have both seen and observed. That brings up the very good point that a lot of times when we see things, we're not observing them. We're not putting them into our brain. And my friend is always very good about this. You know, when we go out and we see the Grand Canyon or a beautiful mountain, we're all wrapped up in our cameras. We're all wrapped up in social media. I usually look something up to see exactly what I'm seeing and learn a little bit more about it. But her point is just watch, just look at it, just soak it in. I think that part of me is sad because there wasn't cameras the way there are now. When I had a camera as a kid, you had to buy film and then you had to process the film. You know, we didn't have that opportunity to take photographs and remember all the things that were going on in our lives like we do now. But in a sense, we got a chance to actually just look at things, just experience things, not to be taking photographs of it all the time, not to be built into our phones with our attention fully going to it. Sure, we didn't get to chat with our friends all the time. We didn't get photographs all the time. But did it help us in building some of these memories? And will people in the future have a harder time with memories because they were busy photographing it instead of living in the moment? I mean, I don't know. But he is saying that we have to start paying attention. 
They did this experiment with these kids passing basketballs back and forth. And something, I'm not going to tell you what it is, because I'm going to put a link to one of these videos in the show notes. It explains a little bit of this process of what he says, quote, we're not only blind to the obvious, but we're blind to our own blindness. We don't even know about the things we're not seeing. But he says that our attention is really what we have to focus. It's our limited resource. We can only pay attention to so many things at a time. And if we're playing a game, we're chatting with our friends, we're looking at the baseball score, we're not experiencing the thing that we're supposed to be experiencing. We're missing our trip, we're missing our vacation, we're missing time with our family or our children or our grandchildren or our spouse. So attention is the one thing that's the most important part of all of this. He says that you can significantly see people's memories go down the tubes because we're multitasking all the time. Look, I am the queen of multitasking. I multitasked before there were fun things and fun devices to multitask with. I was never in the moment unless I forced myself to be. And I know that it affected my memory because now that I try to focus on things and I try to remember things, I try to make stories, true stories, and tell people about events and things that I saw, it makes my memory so much better. He says that our hippocampus collects everything, gathers all these memories, and then tries to recreate them into a story, a response. He says it's a memory of emotion. Were we scared? You know, whatever emotion we're having, but it's our hippocampus that rearranges it and puts it almost like it's a movie into our memory banks. He says it's interesting, too, that walking through doors can affect our memory. And I think it makes sense. So imagine you're at work and you're really stressed out. You're mad at your coworker. You have all these emotions. And then you decide, I'm going to go to lunch. You go out the door, you walk into the elevator. And then by the time you're at the bottom of the door, think about half the emotion just fizzles out of you. There's something weird about going through a door or starting a new thing, getting on a plane, that whatever was happening to you before that moment is cleared out. And he said that it's called the doorway effect and that a team at Notre Dame, 2011, published a paper, Walking Through the Door Causes Forgetting. And I think it's because it's almost like a boundary. It's a new threshold. Sunday to Monday works that way too, that we may have this great weekend. Now it's Monday and suddenly it's a fresh start. I think anytime we have a fresh start, it almost gives our brain this opportunity to create a blank slate. And so possibly some of the things we were thinking before the weekend, before we got on the plane, before we walked into the elevator will fade a little bit. So if you need to remember something, it's important that you get those down before you cross a threshold of some kind. Maybe even New Year's is like that too. He also talks about the fact that when you're in a certain situation, like you're underwater is the example he gave, but if you're in a particular classroom, your chances of remembering what was said in the classroom goes up when you take a test in the classroom itself. I always thought it was a big mistake and that the university should have known better when I was in college that we would end up having our course in one particular classroom. And then for the final exam, they would move us across the university into some random classroom 
to take our final exam. Not really sure why we couldn't just have that same room again. Chances are we would do much better by taking our final exam in that same room. So when talking about paying attention, he says that it'll help if we do what he calls a digital detox, which a lot of people call for you to do, which means get away from your phone, get away from your computer, get away from your TV, and get away from those things so you can start making life more memorable. Like when I went to the monastery and I put my camera away and I put all my bird watching stuff away, I was able then to just be in the moment at that monastery and really drink in deep that experience. I also miss taking pictures of a few birds, but my ability to pay attention probably was more valuable at that point. He says to, quote, treat happy memories as you would treat your date. Pay attention. So we should think about these memories as important, just like if we were going out at dinner with a spouse or a boyfriend, we would put our phones away and we would pay attention to them. We should do the same thing for memories that we're trying to make in life. And he reminded us that people's happiest days had to do with connecting with other people, that we have memories when we're with people that we love, that we're with people making memories. And so making sure that you understand that people are an important part of how we build memories too. When we connect with other people, with the world around us, it'll make us happier and it'll make us remember those happy times better. He says personally what he found when he's looking at this. He says that memories are when three things are brought together. Who we feel we are, who we want to be, and how others see us. When those three things are aligned together, that's when we're going to make the best happiness that we can have, and that'll also make for those happy memories too. And that when we have these moments, they make up the story of our lives. And so when we look back at our lives, when we think about how happy our lives are, these memories are important. So having those alignment in who we think we are and what we want out of life and how other people see us We'll start producing a happier story that we can fall back on when we're maybe not so happy, but also think of fondly when we are happy. That he likes to think about our short-term memory like a storage facility, like RAM, he says. And RAM, if you don't know, is the temporary memory that only exists in memory when the computer is on. So I'm writing a Word document and it's slowly writing it to the hard drive. There's a temporary split-second moment where it's in what's called RAM. It's memorizing it for me so that it can put it on a slower writing hard drive. I don't want to get too technical in that. But that's what our short-term memory is. And so if we have these things that are coming in, that's the short-term memory. The long-term memory, of course, is me like a hard drive where we actually store data. We put it online. You know, that data gets saved somewhere. One of the things that struck me, and this is going to be an old analogy, but I used to work in a library from the time I was in school to college, and there used to be a thing called a card catalog. And so you would have cards, and they would be a card of the author, and these are all the books the author wrote. And then you'd have another card of categories. Maybe you would be talking about memory. And so you'd have this guy, Mike Viking. You would have Jim Quick. You would have everyone who ever wrote a book about memory as a topical card. 
And then you would have another card for the actual book itself. When did the library get the book? And if a book was involved in many categories, it was easier to find that book. Because if I said a card for memory, if I said a card for psychology, if I said a card for happiness, then there's more cards in the card catalog that makes the book easier to find. And someone in college said that that's how memory works for us too. That as we tie our memories to many different aspects of a certain event, so I go to Iceland, that's a holiday memory. But I was with my brother, so it's a brother memory. And I was having an adventure, seeing things I'd never seen before. Now it's an adventure memory. But I also saw birds and whales. So now it's a naturalist memory. But the more things that you can tie a specific memory to, that will help us bring it back and recall it better. You know, so I think making that card catalog. So I've always tried to do that whenever I have a memory I really want to memorize. I try to tie it to so many different categories, it would be impossible for me to fail. He says, too, that memories are emotional that we can remember things that are emotional experiences. You know, when you get married or the first time you went skiing and you overcame something that you were really scared to do, that emotion comes in longer with that. And so we'll remember it even better. And if we're even close to an event, maybe it wasn't our memory of something. Maybe we went to the Olympics and we saw someone do an amazing feat run a race that couldn't possibly be run in that time, but they did it, overcome something terrible. That gets into our memory too. So it's also about that emotion, but the closer we are to it, the better we'll remember it. And he says that what we should try to do is when we're trying to think about what's going to be our future memory is we try to think about what we'll remember in 10 years. And if we think that this won't be very memorable in 10 years, we should try to work on it either by recording it in a diary, taking a picture of it, finding some way of memorizing an event or an emotion or a smell that will help us break that 10-year rule. He said, just on a side note, that our memory is worse on Monday and Tuesdays and better on weekends. And that might have to do with the happiness of the memories. I see people complain all the time about Mondays, Tuesdays but then it's Thursday and Friday and then the weekend. So I think it might have a little bit to do with happiness, but for whatever reason, our memory gets better as we get closer to the weekend. He says that we can use stories to help us improve our memories. I think that's where I do really well on memories. As you can probably tell, I like to tell stories about memories and events, and I like to tell them to multiple people sometimes the same people over and over again. But because I turn everything into a story, even on this podcast when I talk about stories, I'm learning that I'm remembering things so much better because I'm telling you all about these memories and what they meant to me and the struggles and all the good things that happen or the bad things that happen. But as soon as we bring things into a story, that will make our memories work a lot better with it. Because I'm a public speaker and because I do a lot of support visits and I see people struggle in certain ways with software and I try to bring examples of when people were also struggling and these are the things they try, because everything in some way becomes a story with me, my memory is great with that. 
I am terrible about memorizing dates and amounts and numbers, but if I can put it in a story, I will never forget it. I try to put everything into a story because I know that will help me remember it. There are things in grade school history that I couldn't even tell you. Ask me when the War of 1812 was. I have no idea. Ask me when Cinco de Mayo is. I don't know. But if you tell me the story of the War of 1812, I know all about it. So this is the important part when it comes to memory that you have to make it part of that story. Yeah, I know when Cinco de Mayo is. But if we can collect these stories and record them, it'll help us remember. My friend's father did that story core book writing piece where he actually took the whole history of his life and got it placed into a book and then had the book printed. And he could give that book out to his kids and his grandkids. But that process of remembering his whole life brought up memories of his whole life. He went through all his photographs, scanned them in. He did all this hard work and that made him appreciate the things that he went through. So just by Putting them into a story, whether it's a physical book or just telling other people the story, it'll help us remember. It'll help us remember longer than the average, which is like 20 minutes. We lose about 40% of our memory. And in one day, he says, we lose about 70% of our story. But if we can turn it into a story, we'll be able to keep that memory for longer. Because essentially, then we're repeating it and repeating it. I think when you look at ancient texts, that's what I always found so interesting, is they talked about Homer and his writings on the Greek war with Troy. That was never written down, probably by Homer. But instead, Homer was probably a bard who told the story, going from town to town and telling everybody. Then someone finally got smart, wrote it down for him, and then it became the Odyssey. And luckily, that person gave credit to Homer. But storytelling probably kept his mind sharp and made it sure that he kept all those facts with him. He says in the end that people are able to remember positive details better than negative details and that so many parts of our memories have to do with past Christmases, trips, holidays, exciting new things like learning to ride a bike, he says, but that negative memories tended to be about health scares, something that was very scary, the death of someone. But keep in mind that our good memories are easier to remember for us and that we should hold on to them. His suggestion is that we start becoming an architect of our own memories by recalling where they were, what was around at that time, the people that were there. The more things that we draw into this memory, the places, the smells, everything that goes in it, the better we'll be able to do in memorizing this particular event, this happy moment in our lives. And then if we can take mementos of those things, get photographs, get something from that particular memory, it'll help us in keeping track of all those things that happen. I got into this weird habit where I collect rocks. I don't know. I've always had this rock thing. I love rocks. And so every time I go someplace new, I collect a rock. I have a rock from my hike in England. I have rocks from my time in Israel. I have rocks from my time in Hawaii. And now, this last weekend when I visited my mom and brother, we exchanged rocks. That's sweet. We did. So I try to use those as a memento of places that I'm with. 
But he says that part of the problem with photographs and trying to use photographs to enable our memory is that we take so many photographs and we're drowning in pictures all the time. Not only that, those photos can get lost or somehow destroyed. And that if we can curate those photographs, his suggestion was that we actually print them out. But I think one thing he's missing on that is that you can also curate your photographs on your phone or on your electronic devices. So while he's kind of down on the digital part of it, and I understand why, I have curated my photographs on my electronic devices in such a way that they help me actually remember what is important. So I never look at my full list of photographs that are full of screenshots and all sorts of things. They're all just the most important memories for me. So I like this book. I liked his viewpoint about trying to make our memories work for us for happiness, not just for important work details or other things that we have to do, but instead using them as a resource so we can look back at our happy memories, so we can tell stories about our memories, but then maybe we can also fight off bad days by looking back at these good memories. So my challenge to you is see if you can create, in whatever digital media you use, a favorites folder that bring the most precious moments you have with your friends, your family, your life experiences. Don't make it overwhelmingly large, but really just the core of what's important for your memory. And see if you can't reflect on that a few times in the week to see if it can actually make you happier. All right, everyone, thanks so much. I appreciate you listening to the podcast. And remember that you can always email me at jill at startwithsmallsteps.com. It is so hard for me to remember that new domain name. But you can always email me. I'm really interested in what you like. You know, I do different podcasts, some on books, and even some other ones are about entertainment. I'm interested in what you like the best. So please remember that you can email me. And if there's a particular kind of podcast I do that you like, let me know. And remember that our trip into the future and making new happy memories happens with small steps. Small steps.